Bibles, if you will, to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11, we'll begin reading in verse 1. This is God's Word. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us, and we pray now that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things. Lord, this is a difficult passage. It's hard to understand. We need your spirit to work in our hearts and minds. Would you have your way today? Use this for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we're in this period of intermission between the sixth and seventh trumpet. We started it in chapter 10 where we were last week, and so this intermission continues. The focus of the intermission, as we pointed out last week, is the church, particularly the churches to whom this letter was written, the seven churches in Asia Minor. However, as we've pointed out throughout our study of Revelation, this letter is for us. It's a letter for the church throughout the church age. And I hope that you will see and have seen, but especially see again today. I mean, each week as we come to the next passage, I'm, I'm just gladdened by what's here for us. There's so much that relates to our own time. It matters to us as well. Now, as I mentioned in my prayer, this particular passage is filled with a lot of images that's, well, they're hard to understand. And I was somewhat comforted this week in my studies as I read on at least two occasions, some call this one of or the most difficult passage in the book of Revelation. 
So I was like, okay, so it's not just me, because there's all this stuff. What does it mean? Well, part of the difficulty for us, and I speak from my own experience, having not grown up in reform circles, part of the difficulty is my own upbringing. But we've been influenced, all of us as Americans, by modern evangelicalism, and there are ideas and teachings and so forth that are certainly kind of popularized in, in, in mainstream evangelicalism that influence us. And so it affects then how we come to understand a passage like this. So part of this has to do with our understanding or maybe misunderstanding of what the temple of God actually is. We know what the temple of God is in the Old Testament. If we went to Sunday school growing up, we learned all about it. We may have had coloring sheets that had the temple of God in it. We may have you know, looked at the, the elements that are there and understood it. And so that can easily be brought into the New Testament understanding. But something very significant happened when Jesus died on the cross. The veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place was torn into. So something radically changes in the new covenant in terms of our understanding of what the temple of God actually is. Another part has to do with just that influence that we have from evangelicalism around us that suggests that a future temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. If you hold to this view, it's, it's fine. Again, these, these variances of, of understanding on what these symbols represent are not a reason to break fellowship. I hope you won't uh, get mad at me for having a different view. But I want to give a couple of reasons why it is problematic. And I wasn't going to give this reason, but I will go ahead and say it without unpacking it. The first reason is just pragmatic. Do you, do you know what sits on the Temple Mount today? holy site to the Muslim religion, the Dome of the Rock, the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And while our God is mighty and can do anything, we, represent, we understand that that is, is a real problem. Even depending, if you know, again, how you understand the whole temple element, destruction of the temple, how that plays into everything. We won't go further in that. But my, my, my first other reason that I have in my notes that wasn't there uh, was the fact that, G- that nowhere in Scripture does it speak of the rebuilding of the temple. You have to bring that idea into Scripture to understand that. Jesus speaks of the destruction of the temple uh, in Matthew 24. He says, not a stone will be left upon a stone, that it will be destroyed. That happened in 70 A.D., but he doesn't speak of it being rebuilt. Now, if you're thinking of the passage where he says to the, 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 the scribes and the Pharisees, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days, we understand that's not speaking of the physical temple, but actually his body. He was speaking of his resurrection in that passage. So the rebuilding is not in Scripture. Second, the purpose of the temple was, of course, worship, but it was primarily for animal sacrifice. It's primarily for worship, but... Part of that was for animal sacrifice. The means of animal sacrifice is built into the temple uh, through the altar and the systems of worship there. And we know that when Christ died, it was a once-for-all sacrifice, that there is no more need for sacrifice. Uh, We could go to a number of passages. We could look at much of the book of Hebrews on this. I'll read just one verse from chapter 10, verse 18. Where there is forgiveness of sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. I would suggest that it would be an affront to Christ 
to attempt to restore the temple and its offering systems after he died once and for all for our sins. And again, this is made especially clear in the tearing of the veil at his death. That happened. That, 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 uh, that happened. And that is truly meaningful. Third, and it's kind of built into what I've already said, but Richard Phillips writes this, if the temple were rebuilt, it would stand as a monument to the unbelieving rejection of the cross of Jesus Christ. So the idea of the temple then in the new covenant must have a different meaning. And it's important for us to understand what this is before we can look at this passage today. I want to go to a number of other passages so that you don't think that I'm doing some kind of hermeneutical gymnastics to get to this. This is in Scripture. And there are actually uh, a number of helpful books on this. Uh, Greg Beale has one. He's written it with someone else, and I forget the other author's name. Uh, but he, he goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, and I'm, I'm currently reading it. I wish I had read it before we did Genesis because I don't feel like I gave that enough treatment of the whole idea of temple really beginning in the Garden of Eden and the idea of temple being God's presence with his people, God dwelling with his people, God walking with his people. And, of course, that's expanded upon. We'll look at that in one of uh, the passages that quotes Leviticus this morning. But, again, when we see the tabernacle and the temple pointing forward to Jesus Christ, but it was, a, it was the place at which God chose to dwell with his people. It's all about God dwelling with his people. So let me read 1 Corinthians 3.16. Paul asks this question, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Very plainly stated. In 2 Corinthians 6.16 we read, For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, and here he quotes that passage from Leviticus 26.12, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. It is about God's dwelling with us. And so... Because Christ fulfills all that the temple, the tabernacle and the temple pointed to. He is the fulfillment, not just of the atonement, but of God dwelling with us. The veil is torn in two. We now have access to the throne. Everything has changed. And so in our union with Christ, we are now the body of Christ, the church, and are now His dwelling place. He has chosen to dwell in us through His Spirit in us. Ephesians, Paul writes, You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God has chosen to dwell in His people the church. We are the temple of God. One final passage in this book, Revelation. If you remember the messages to the seven churches, to the church in Philadelphia, the promise was to the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. We are pillars in the temple of our God. Now, once we see this of the temple, and in keeping with the focus on the church, that the intermission here is a message to the church. It was a message of exhortation, comfort, instruction for how the church is to live. Now we can unpack the rest of chapter 11. The temple represents the people of God, His church, and the measuring then is an accounting of them. 
It is a taking count. In a sense, that's what you do when you measure. If you want to see how big the room is, you're taking account of the distance, and you put it all together, whatever the mathematical formula was for that. I forgot my eighth grade math, but uh, area, something like that. Anyway, you're, you're taking account, and that's what this measuring is, that ultimately God knows his people. He has taken account of them, and therefore they are safe. Kistemacher calls the measuring a variant of the sealing of the church that we read about in chapter 7. This is God's mark on us, that he has measured us, he knows us. And so beginning in verse 1, we see John is given a measuring rod like a staff. He's told to measure the temple of God, but note that the measuring is not simply a physical structure. It is the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. If we thought of this as a physical structure, if this was a future physical building, we would have trouble then with the measuring of the people there. How do you, are we measuring their height or, you know, the number or, or what? It becomes problematic. But if we understand this rather as the symbol for the church, then of course it all makes sense that here God is measuring those who are his. He knows those who are his. Now the voice that's speaking to John may be understood as the mighty angel that was speaking before. I think the voices have actually changed because in verse 3 we see the voice mentioned, my two witnesses. And we know that these are the witnesses of Christ. So I think this is Christ's voice here speaking to John. He's commanded to not measure, to leave out the court outside the temple, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city. If we think back to Solomon's temple, we know there were separate parts, and beyond the outer court there was the court of the Gentiles. And Isaiah explains why the court of the Gentiles was there, that it was to be, the temple was to be a house of prayer for all nations. It wasn't to be an exclusive country club. It was to be as a light for the nations, a place for those who feared God who could come and could pray. Now this, in this symbol then, could be pointing to those outside the visible church. It could be pointing to unbelievers, but I'd like to suggest to you that this is pointing to unbelievers within the visible church. Unbelievers within the visible church. John spoke of such people in his first epistle, those who give lip service to following Christ, but who don't truly believe. He calls them antichrists in 1 John 2.19. And he writes this about them, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were all not of us. And so if this is accurate in terms of our understanding of this passage today, then unbelievers within the church become part of the trampling of the holy city, another reference to the people of God. And this would be consistent in our own day, unfortunately. Those who walk away from the faith, who prove they were never part of the faith, unfortunately do so often in a way that attempts to do harm to the church of Christ. If you are not familiar with those who call themselves ex-evangelicals, it's a rather new term that was coined by one who calls himself such. Those who have deconstructed their faith, those who were a part of the church, many of them grew up in the church and have now rejected the faith. And they, interestingly, rather than just saying, yeah, I don't believe anymore, goodbye, they have poor like a lot of time and effort in social media, in posts, and in videos to doing harm to the church. Like, okay, you don't believe, let it go. Walk away. 
but they're they're out there and they're and and they're recruiting. They're they they are evangelical. <laughs> they're evangelical for a de- deconstructed faith or or uh, you know and in uh, a sense of uh, an atheism. They are out trying to win converts to seduce our young people into rejecting the faith with them. It's heartbreaking. It should break our hearts. Even though many of these people have been deeply hurt, some of them have suffered abuse, it doesn't make an excuse for any of that. I'm not trying to. I think our hearts should break rather than, 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 than lash out at these people. But we have to recognize what they are. John, what he captures here in the book of Revelation, what he mentions in his epistle, not all who attend church, not all who lead in church, not all who call themselves Christians, not all who write books, perform Christian music, or are Christian celebrities are truly a part of Christ's church. So this is a point for self-reflection for us. Where are we? This is not to question your faith in the sense of, I'm not trying to cause anyone to doubt. But I do think that we should take account of our faith. Where is my faith? Am I looking to my own efforts? Am I looking to my own achievements? Looking back? Let me tell you one sneaky way how this reveals itself in our hearts. Have you done something remarkable for the Lord? And then do you ever hold that against him when troubles come your way? But Lord, I did this. Why would you let this happen? I'm not saying that you're not a believer. I'm saying this is a way we assess what is the object of our faith. So the question then at this point becomes, are we trusting now in Christ alone? This is where we are to look, not counting anything we have done or could do to earn our favor before God. Now John mentions the time of persecution that the church will face, 42 months, the end of verse 2, and then again in verse 3, 1,260 days. For those of you who are pulling out your phones to do the math, I've done it. Um, I, I guess that makes me a nerd that I couldn't just believe all the, the, the authors that say it's the same thing. I really did pull out my calculator. Uh, 30 days in a month times 42 months is 1,260 days. And if we divide 42 by 12, which is a year, we get three and a half years. So you may remember that number from Daniel, the passage that we read in Daniel last week. So three and a half years is the same as 42 months is the same as 1,260 days. And we see all three of those numbers mentioned, not just in Revelation, but in other apocalyptic literature. So what do they represent? In fact, we see three and a half used again in this chapter in verses 9 and 11. There it's attributed to days instead of years. So we have to understand some of the symbolism. Seven, of course, is the symbol of completion or fulfillment. Uh, this is often the number used to convey perfection. And so three and a half is half of seven. So this is a number that represents, in a sense, something that's broken or imperfect, something that didn't move to its final completion, something that has been stopped in its tracks. It is an undisclosed amount of time. And this, of course, all fits with the church age. Because what did Jesus tell us? No one knows the day. 
No one knows the day when He will return. And so whatever trajectory you think that the church is on, there will come a time when Christ will return and it will all be repaired and fixed. Now, if, you're, if you take the post-mill perspective on this, then your inclination is that it's moving in that direction anyway. But all of the other views see more of a decline. And so my point in this is to recognize that whatever view that you take on the end times, particularly the millennial position in that, Christ is going to return and make all things new. I remember when I was sorting through all of this, before I went to seminary, trying to figure out where I landed, we had a pediatrician, Micah's pediatrician when he was born, who had been my pediatrician <laughs> when I was a kid. And remarkably, when we took Micah in there, he looked at me and he said, eh, you're at Wallace. And he remembered me, even though I was 25, 30 years older at this point. But we got to talking, and he was a elder in the PCA church, and I told him, you know, I'm struggling with all these things, and I'm trying to sort all this stuff out, and, and he said, well, you know what I am? I'm a pan-millennialist. I think it's all going to pan out in the end. And he was very witty, and he had a lot of local sayings like that, but I appreciated the perspective that at some point, when you're really confused and you don't know where to land on all this stuff, that's a safe place to come back and land. It's going to all pan out in the end. God wins. Um, but my point here is that with the number three and a half, we're talking about an undisclosed amount of time, a time that is interrupted. And yet it is known to one. God knows the time, and he will bring about the consummation at the right time. He will complete his plans. And the point of this message is that the suffering church needs to hear, God will keep you safe. He will hold you. Why do we need to hear this message especially if we're not being persecuted. There's no one knocking on the doors, coming in with guns and threatening our lives here. Why do we need to hear this message? Because whatever suffering we endure in this life, and we're all going to suffer differently, the promise isn't that we're going to suffer the same, whatever suffering that we're enduring comes with a message that you're not safe, that God isn't good. That's what suffering does to us. We go through suffering and we think, how could you let this happen? Why, why would you do this, God? Don't you love me? That's our reaction to it. And so this is why we need to hear again and again that no matter what you're going through, God is saying to you, don't look at your circumstances. Listen to my voice. I'm going to keep you safe. I will keep you safe and I will deliver you. The message of God's protection continues as he describes the church and its roles in verses 3 and following. We're going to speed up here, I promise. Two witnesses, two olive trees, and two lampstands. Each of these symbols having been used in Scripture to describe the people of God, and here they do as well. Jesus, who is called the faithful witness, we see this in the book of Revelation chapter 1, said to his disciples at his ascension, you will be my what? Witnesses, as he sends them out, Acts 1.8. Zechariah, we've looked at this passage before. He uses both olive trees and lampstands to refer to the people of God's symbols of God's people as lights to the nation, Zechariah chapter 4. In the beginning of Revelation, we saw the lampstand again used as a symbol for the seven churches, the seven lampstands representing the people of God. So this is consistent then with our understanding of this passage and the symbols being used here as reflecting the church. 
So the two witnesses then are not two individuals or characters in the end times who appear on the scene with superpowers to breathe fire and to call down plagues upon the earth, but rather the two witnesses represent the church throughout this age, just as these other symbols represent the church. Now, why the number two? Well, when we look in Scripture, we need to look there as to our own time, we see the importance placed on two or more witnesses. In our own day, we accept accusation from one witness, but, and, and, and I don't think that that's wholly problematic, but it can be problematic, and we understand that it can be problematic because we have statements like, he said, she said, right? We understand that when one person makes one claim, someone else can make the opposite claim. And the idea with two or more witnesses is, again, there can still be fraud, but the, the idea or the wisdom behind it is that there is unity or an affirming of what the witness is saying. And so throughout Scripture, we see an emphasis on two or more witnesses. In Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, we see the requirement of two witnesses to carry out a sentence from a capital crime. Jesus, referring to the law in John 8.17, says to the scribes and the Pharisees, In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. We see the problem with the lack of two corroborating witnesses at the trial of Jesus in Mark 14.56 in the following narrative there, that the, the, the various witnesses that came forward were not telling the truth, and it was evidenced by the fact that their testimony didn't agree. We might think of a passage like Matthew 18 that speaks to us about peacemaking and tells us that when we go to make peace and someone doesn't listen, that we take a witness with us, again, to corroborate or to verify what is happening in that experience. And so the, the church here is pictured as two witnesses that speak to the truth of the message of the gospel. Two witnesses. We see that they're clothed in sackcloth. It's not hard to understand what that represents. The church will suffer and will continue to suffer throughout the age. It doesn't mean all Christians will suffer in the same way. We have to be careful here not to compare our lives to others. We're all going to suffer differently. I think the point is not that we, whether we suffer the same as others, but rather that we don't maintain an expectation that our life should be free from suffering. I find that a much greater struggle. I question suffering when it comes because I think somewhere deep down in my heart that I shouldn't suffer. And yet we've been promised to suffer. The message of protection continues in verse 5, speaking to the power that the church will have. Fire pours from their mouth, speaking to the power of God's word that they proclaim. Not any power in themselves, it's the power of God through His Word that comes forward. Uh, They have the power to shut the sky and they have the power over the waters, this is verse 6, to turn them into blood and to bring down all kinds of plagues. Speaking of God's sovereign power over creation, both of these, though, are pointing to Old Testament examples. And the, and the Jewish readers would have known when they, when they heard these what they were pointing to. The first being Elijah praying that it would not rain, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. This is in 1 Kings 17. Moses, of course, is being alluded to in the, turning the water into blood and other plagues. And we've seen that reference again and again uh, coming back to the book of Exodus and uh, leading up to uh, the deliverance of God of his people. So John here is referring back to Old Testament examples. Why? To show the church 
that the God of power of the Old Testament isn't a God of far-off history. He is the God who is at work in and through you today, in and through us. The same powerful God is at work. This doesn't mean that we can say prayers that appear as casting spells to get what we want. Unfortunately, some people go in that direction. No, it's, it's, we're praying to God according to His will, that His will would be done on earth as it is in, is in heaven. But His power isn't diminished. That's the message here that John is getting at. The power of prayer is real and true, not because of us, but because of the one to whom we pray. He is the one who is almighty. And so we come to him with confidence that he can and will do what he wants. In verses 7 to 13, there's a further description of the church's suffering under persecution, even to the point of death. And yet we know that the church will never die. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What a great comfort this is to us, especially as we live in a day of increasing persecution, not, not, not just the, the kind of stuff that we face where Christianity is no longer esteemed. We know that persecution could come our way, but we know of things that are happening around the world, uh, terrible tragedies of people being slaughtered for their faith. And yet Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We can think about the stories throughout church history even to the point where it seemed like the church was going to be eradicated, only to uncover an even larger underground church that couldn't be stopped. The message here is that no one can ultimately trample and squash the church of Jesus, not even the beast who rises from the abyss. And here is the first mention of the beast. We'll see him more in the book of Revelation. What I want you to notice here, though, in terms of his opposition, is that John uses an present active verb. He says, the beast rises. Not the beast rose, or the beast will rise, but the beast rises. It's active and ongoing, meaning that this is what's happening right now. And this has been true throughout the church age. Satan is a lion on the prowl. He is looking to, for whom he can devour. That's the image here. Paul Gardner writes, It is a permanent cast of its character that the beast continues to come forth from the abyss. The experiences being described here are very much the experience of the church throughout the age. So the church will suffer. And we can understand that. And we have seen that. Those, there are those who would wish to silence her, to eliminate her, And it will at times appear as if they have succeeded. It will seem like the church has been conquered and eradicated. It says their dead bodies will lie in the street. These streets described here uh, by John as the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt where their Lord was crucified. Let me stop here and point. John is saying that he is speaking symbolically here. So we don't have to work a whole lot, but it wouldn't be hard for us to understand that this is symbolism because he mentions one city, one nation, and then the location of Christ's death, not three cities. Now, if he hadn't told us that, we could understand it was symbolic, but because he says that, then we could easily understand this to be the world that opposes the church. Sodom represents depraved immorality. Egypt represents oppressive totalitarian enslavers. The place where our Lord was crucified represents those who would kill the martyrs. And of course, much more is being communicated here just than just those three simple things. The point is, 
Christians will suffer many atrocities throughout the age. And those who persecute them, though they will celebrate and mock, we see that in verse 10, they will refuse honor to even bury their bodies, verse 9, yet the church will not die. Even when it appears that it has been wiped off the map, the life-giving breath of the resurrected Christ enters the bones and brings forth life. The gates of hell will not prevail. Not only will the church be given life again and again, never to die or be wiped out, there will come a day when Christ returns that believers are caught up to meet Him in the air. And this is the final picture. Note that they will be vindicated in this. Look in verse 12. The enemies of the church will watch this happen. There's no secret rapture of the church. Everyone will see. Everyone will hear the trumpet. Everyone will know what is happening. And at the time of His return, there will be a judgment as signified by the earthquake, a death of one-tenth of the city. Uh, we see this number 7,007 again. It was, it's a complete number. A thousand represents a multitude. We've seen this mentioned with angels and other things. This is not a literal 7,000, but rather a complete number of people will die in this act of judgment. But not all will die because He points out many will see the church of Jesus vindicated as they rise to meet their Savior in the air and return with Him. None, though, will escape the final judgment. There is a final judgment that is to come, and no one will escape. The message of God's sovereign protection of His church throughout the age is one that was needed by the churches in Asia Minor and is needed by us today. And while we often talk of persecution in far-off places, I admit that it so quickly wanes from my attention. I've been to places many of you have as well. You've heard firsthand stories. You know that there are Christians who have truly suffered. We read email updates, right? I mean, we don't, it's, this is not even about hearing. Remember, I mean, when I was growing up, it was a newsletter that might come you know, three or four times a year or a visiting missionary once every few years, you'd hear the stories. Now, we can get this stuff in our inbox every day if we want and hear about what is happening around the world so that we can pray. And yet, what happens? Our hearts break. We might pray in that moment. And then I start thinking about the noise my vehicle is making or the grass spot that's dying in the yard and I need to get that stuff to put on it or the pile of emails that's needing responding to. We're so easily distracted. I forget how important it is to notice, remember, and pray. And so let me encourage you today again to take one of the worship or the prayer guides that's in the narthex to help you pray for the persecuted church. It's a very simple tool to incorporate into your prayer time. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working, James 5.16. Yet the safety promised to Christ's church, His temple, is not just for those suffering at the hands of persecution. All who are His are promised deliverance from all of our suffering in this life. So for whatever you're facing, whatever you are weighed down under, your deliverer is coming. Whatever it is that is crushing your spirit that doesn't make sense, He continues to hold you. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. As we close our time of worship today, we're going to sing these words. 
I just want to point out a few of them so that we think as we sing. When faced with trials on every side, we know the outcome is secure. And Christ will have the prize for which He died, an inheritance of nations. So Spirit, come, put strength in every stride, give grace for every hurdle, that we may run with faith to win the prize of a servant, good and faithful, as we hunger for the day when with Christ we stand in glory. Let's pray. Father, help us to know deeply and truly within our hearts that we are safe. There's so many circumstances that we face in this life that say otherwise. And we don't understand. And we can't make sense. So would you remind, would you instruct, and would you help us to see that you are a God who is near. Indeed, you are in our midst. You have chosen to dwell in us by your Spirit. You have made us your temple. This is your dwelling place. How could you not keep it safe? How could you not deliver your church? Help us to believe this, to walk in faith and to trust you no matter what we face. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.